I somehow convinced my team to let me coach myself in my last year, <laughs> which was like the real just like nail in the coffin. Like I'm living this dual life of like I'm this like wild artist at night and then I wake up and I'm like hella tired and I like have to go train now. <laughs> and so then I felt like I was just I could never do anything that the my coach wanted me to do. So eventually I was just like I'm gonna coach myself and they're like they said yes and I was like wow. It's showtime everybody showtime You've been living in a dream world, Neo. Yeah. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around yeah. once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we talking about practice. Hey, Pete, on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Yeah. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McKelvin. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I don't know if you'll be able to hear it in your ears, but I, I think I can hear it in mine. An increase in sound quality. We are back in our quaint little studio here in Durango, Colorado, which happens to be next to our quaint little house, which is buried in snow at the moment. Has been buried in snow for several months now, which we've been avoiding largely. Um, Nicole and I have been on a bit of a tear travel wise, even by our standards, I think since big sugar gravel about five months ago, we've been home for a cumulative, maybe 10 days. And that counts the last few days that we've been back here in Durango since returning from Girona, Spain. And although that can be exhausting, um, I think one of the reasons that we have trouble slowing our slowing our schedule in that regard is because it presents so many incredible opportunities to see the world, to get to know the world and to get to know people, um, and share really meaningful conversations. We were able to record this conversation with Taylor Finney shortly before leaving Girona. And it's something that I've wanted to do for quite a while. Uh, Taylor and I have met on several occasions, but never really in a scenario where, we hung out per se. Um, as you'll hear in the podcast, uh, kind of funny, the The first time we met, he would have been 19 years old, which would have made me 15 or 16, I think, uh, was mountain biking with Lance Armstrong on Lance's old ranch outside of Dripping Springs, Texas. Uh, bit of a weird scenario. I think uh, he and Taylor and Lawson Craddock and... Joe Dombrowski maybe were finishing a training ride, an early season training ride in the Texas Hill Country and decided to hop on some mountain bikes uh, to cap their day and allowed wide-eyed me to tag along. Um, and so that's when I first met Taylor. But since then, we've, you know, we have plenty of mutual friends, seen each other here and there, but I've remained really curious about who he is, um, particularly in light of his exit from the sport and then just incredible enthusiasm for life after cycling. It's always been really interesting to me. Um, and Taylor has struck me as, uh, someone that I, I had a lot of trouble getting, getting a read on, to be honest. Um, both in terms of stuff he puts out in the world, art wise, um, social media wise, 
the way he likes to enjoy the bike these days, it's all very unique. And that kind of left me with a lot of interest and curiosity, especially in light of his career um, and the way that the media has framed it, the, the way the rest of cycling often looks at his career, which was cut short by many standards. And so I wanted to hear from him. What has that journey been like? What is his life like now? Um, what does he think when he looks back on his career? And I really had no idea what to expect. Um, well, what I expected was some walls, honestly, like some, I thought it would be hard to break through and it was kind of the opposite. And boy, Taylor was just, he, he knocked my socks off. Like he, he's so comfortable with himself as you'll hear. And it was, it made me realize that he left the sport, not because he was trying to figure stuff out, but because he'd kind of figured stuff out and he knew what he wanted. Um, and he knew what he didn't want. So I feel very grateful that he gave us so much time. We froze our asses off in his art studio, his sound studio, kind of ridiculously cold day by Girona standards and his fireplace was acting a little funky. So we gritted our teeth and got through this one, but I'm so glad we did. Speaking of cold stuff, I want to give a shout out to Dometic today and their CFX3 line of powered coolers. About this time last year, we were introduced to Dometic's CFX powered coolers and took it to the Mid-South Gravel Race, which I'm headed off to here in a few days. And we'll have one in tow again because this has been such a key tool, become such a key tool for everything we do. They're super efficient. They have flexible power sourcing so you can power them off of AC or DC power or even solar power. Uh, we'll be running one off of my Ford Bronco, which is kind of our pre-ride uh, or course recon tool. So um, I'll have, you know, a recovery drink in there, Red Bulls, all that sort of thing. This thing can store up to, well, the 25 liter, which is the smallest, which we we typically travel with, can carry up to 40 cans, which is pretty incredible. And you listeners can get 20% off one of these things or any of the other CFX3 powered coolers at Dometic.com slash outdoor with code STASH23. You can get yourself a whopping 20% off at Dometic.com slash outdoor code STASH23. Thank you all so much for listening today. Uh, sorry for the long intro. Just kind of fired up about this one and wanted to give a little more background about why it was meaningful to me. Catch you after the show. Continue. You were talking about how you, you you can do your intro if you want. I like it when they start like this. <laughs> Welcome. No, no, like in the middle the of a sentence. Stash. In the middle of a sentence <laughs> is ideal. Okay. <laughs> uh, we were talking about the Dali Art Museum, yeah. it being a space that it in itself is a piece of art that houses art, and I was thinking about just that with the art studio because I built all the infrastructure for this studio, all the tables and everything, and the space takes on its own kind of, uh, it becomes its own kind of art piece, and it houses other art pieces. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Not the least of which is the uh, reverse stove. The temperamental, just when it's windy. Yeah. I need to change the uh, 
we did all that. We actually blasted the hole in the wall to no way. Yeah, to put the the chimney through. How? So, how do how do you even go about? Just doing with that? a big drill. Okay. Big drill, and you just it's like maybe a half an inch wide, like this long drill bit. Yeah. And you make one hole, and then you just make another series of holes. It's really satisfies your inner kind of like boy like destructive tendencies <laughs> to blast a hole in the wall of your building nice nice yeah but um, that's probably why it doesn't work very well <laughs> yeah i don't know i grew up with a wood stove and i was trying to think back to little bits of knowledge that my dad might have dropped growing up about the flow of smoke exiting a wood stove but nothing came to mind unfortunately yeah you even pulled out the duct tape well, tried a few things. I was going to try to, yeah. I feel like the gorilla tape or duct tape, or here they call it crocodile tape, oh. uh, is a force to be reckoned with. But I didn't end up doing anything with the tape. But I feel like with the fire, I have this weird relationship with fire because nobody really taught me how to make a fire, I feel like, when I was a kid. I mean, shout out to my parents, they did a great job. But like, <laughs> when I first started going camping and stuff with my friends, when I was relatively old, like in my mid-20s, I had no idea like how to make a fire or mm. what to do. And it just stressed me out so much that I couldn't figure it out. And um, so it's been this whole journey of like the meditational process of making a fire, hmm. which I really enjoy. But... They're temperamental beasts. Have you seen the new movie called Triangle of Sadness? There's a great... No. It's basically... Uh, it's a bit of a social meditation, I guess, where they kind of eviscerate higher class and just wealthy people, particularly maybe the like Santa Monica, Malibu sort of vibe. And there's a hilarious scene where there's these high roller rich guys who get marooned on an island and they're trying to figure out how to start a fire and they're, they have everything in the world but they don't know how to start a fire yeah that was me yeah it's interesting and I was I was rich at that point as well so <laughs> <laughs> I lived it for them <laughs> nice um, alright so we're sitting here in your studio uh, just outside Girona, Spain in court I believe yeah, I mean, technically it's called Palol, mm. Palol Donyar. Donyar. Yeah. But it's close minutes. to Quart. Yeah. Um, why are you still here? Why are you still, <laughs> why are you still in, why are you, I mean, yeah, there yeah. are very nice things about Girona. No, that's a good, that's a... Why did you settle, why do you think you settled in here when you were done racing? Because for most people who are cyclists, Girona is associated with hyper-focus and professional racing and it's this epicenter almost like the boulder of europe only times a yeah. hundred maybe um yeah. clearly it has a lot more to offer than that though what do yeah. you what do you like about it here why'd you stick around no i appreciate that you asked in that way because i too was asking myself why i stayed here <laughs> in the first year or two after i finished my career Mainly I stayed because of the love of my life, Kasha, 
she needed to stay here and didn't want to live in the U.S. And so I was like, all right, cool. Well, I'm retired. I don't have a job and I don't plan on getting a job. So uh, I wanted to just be kind of a this was also I finished my career at the end of 2019. So we're talking like early 2020. We we're having these discussions and then we just got put into lockdown and lockdown over here meant that you couldn't leave the apartment for six weeks and so yeah <laughs> you didn't have a choice at first I didn't have a choice <laughs> Kasha couldn't come to the US for a year so I stayed here for a year and a half and that was for me the longest time I'd spent in one place without leaving in pretty much maybe my whole life because I've been traveling since I was a really young kid with my parents coming to Europe doing just just traveling it's been part of my life so staying here I think I was able to get rid of the Americanisms that I was holding on to that I that were making me fantasize about going back to the US hmm. and I realized then when I went to the U.S. after being here for a year and a half, when I went back to Boulder, I was like, this place is not as cool as I sort of fantasize it to be. And I actually miss being in Spain because people are so much more relaxed. I can be a little bit anonymous, like this goofy foreigner. Mm -hmm. And I have a community here that is really international and we connect on a completely different level than um, even a lot of my friends in the US. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, shout out to my friends in the US. I still love you, you know, <laughs> but it's, I, I lived in Italy. Uh, we moved to Italy when I was 12 and I lived in Italy for three years. Um, went to middle school in Italy, like basically went through puberty in Italy which is a very transformative time, as you know. And I feel like because I had that time there and then I again moved to Italy when I was 20, like I've spent almost 12 years of my life in Europe. And so I feel a lot more connected to maybe the sensibility and like the cadence and rhythm, the, the tempo of the way of life just kind of agrees with me. Hmm. Um, I miss Whole Foods and <laughs> like the variety of nut butters mm -hmm. at my disposal. That was one of our first observations. <laughs> Couldn't find peanut butter, let alone any of the others. Well, you should have asked me because I can tell you where to find it. Um, <laughs> you just have, like here, you just have to seek things out and you'll, you can find them, but it's not as, like we were talking about very briefly the other day, it's like <clears> this <throat> idea of convenience. Like in the US on a Sunday at lunchtime, you can still go to the grocery store and get all of your shit for the week. Whereas here you just can't. And so you just don't <laughs> <laughs> instead of like sitting around like, Oh, I wish I was back in the U S cause I could go get my acai bowl right now. It's like, just wait until Monday morning and it's the same, you know, it's true. What are some of the other American, things that you quote unquote fantasized about when you were here 
that you have since learned you don't really need or don't really miss, whether it's things or cultural aspects? Mm. Yeah. I, <laughs> funnily enough, I feel like a lot of the decisions I've made in my life have been food related. <laughs> <laughs> and so a lot of the fantasies that I have about the U.S. are like food related. They're like, oh, I can go get really banging Indian food or Thai food, uh, Vietnamese food. Um, and then, but on a more practical level, Home Depot. Mm. I miss, I miss Home Depot so much. Um, there's a real hole in the market here for a Home Depot because <laughs> they have hardware stores, but they are just a pain. Um, so, you know, but you, you can still find the things. Also, we have the internet, so you can just buy things on the internet too. But, um, yeah, I guess I, it's mostly food related things that I miss, which is ironic because I feel like the quality of the food here is actually way better. And when I'm in Boulder now, I go out and I have a tomato somewhere and I'm like, this tomato tastes like shit. Tastes like nothing. Like I miss the Spanish tomatoes. Um, this is just going to be a conversation about food basically the whole time. So that works. (laughs) Um, Interesting. How often do you go back? Uh, I went back in the winter for a month and a half. Yeah. But I, in the last couple of years, I guess I've gone back for, I've been back for maybe a month or two each year besides the, the pandemic years. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Back. <laughs> but my parents, my parents actually are starting to rent a place. Really? In Girona. So I'm like, huh. I'm trying to get people to come over here. Like, I mean, the uh, U.S. is crazy. And it's beautiful and there's like so much to explore. But I just feel like culturally, you know, you can jump on a train here and in six hours you're in Paris. You know, That's you go get a good. croissant. Again, food. You can get like the best <laughs> croissant <laughs> of your life. And then you can go, you know, shopping at all these cool, like, whatever. It's Paris. And from Paris, you could go to London in like two and a half hours by train. Yeah. That's crazy. Or you go to Belgium or you go to Berlin. Like, everything is, there's so much culture here. And there's, I just feel like it's like everything creative and artistic comes from this place. Or it comes from Japan. Mm, and then America kind of copies those things and makes their own version, which is also great. But I feel like the seed of culture, like if you go right around, you see the you see the castles and you see the architecture and everything. Like it's, we go on rides here, and I'm just like, I've been here for six years, and I'm like, every ride that I go on is like the best ride I've ever been on. Yeah, it's true. You know? Yeah, it is funny you say that. I mean, two things. First, in terms of the architecture, I had that exact realization at one point a few couple of weeks ago, at some point on a ride, solo ride, just going through one of the many, many little medieval villages. And it was such beautiful architecture and obviously very old. And it just occurred to me, weird attempts at copying this sort of architectural situation from a like proportion standpoint to it just being out there on its own, you know, you, you come across that in the U.S., but it just feels so fabricated. 
Yeah. And but in attempt at copying this thing that's been here since 1200 or, or you know, yeah, 1200 or whatever. Yeah, I don't um, know. And I, I, it was, it was a, a very interesting moment of realization because I was like, there, there are, culturally, there are people in the U.S. of a certain level of affluence who like want this, but they can't quite make it as sweet back home in the U.S. It's interesting you say that you feel like this area or Japan are kind of tastemakers or on the cutting edge of culture because frequently folks often in the LA area like to claim that. Why, like, t- tell me more about that, like why you feel that way. What have you seen that makes you think that? I mean, I think, I, first of all, I think everybody would like to claim yeah, that where they, are, yeah, <laughs> where they are is this, the seed of all culture. Um, unless you live in like the middle of Nebraska, <laughs> um, which is not to say that there's no culture in Nebraska, but um, I guess I mentioned Japan because when I went to Japan for the first time, I was looking around and I was like, oh my God, like this place is like a fairy tale version of, of planet Earth. It's like a separate, it's like being in, in Tokyo is like being in New York, but you're in like a parallel universe mm. and everything is like, different colors and even the even the police cars they look like they're like or no maybe they're the taxis they look like they're like the ghostbusters mobiles you know <laughs> and like the doors open like the other way and you're just like what is this place it's crazy and then from a fashion i guess a lot of my artistic kind of like diving into art started with with being into fashion when i was younger and so being in japan i was like oh this is where Everybody gets their inspiration for the different lines of like high fashion. Mm. And then when I think about Europe, I think, I guess, mostly from a musical perspective that, okay, we could get into a, a real deep dive here about where electronic music came from, because it really did come from like Detroit and Chicago, and they, that really like shaped the sound. However, my journey with electronic music has like it all comes from germany and the uk and barcelona who are some uk artists that you really love uh right now there's this well there's quite a lot we were just listening to totally enormous extinct dinosaurs orlando higginbottom who weirdly had the reason i was surprised that i didn't recognize the music and also had never heard of those people is because it was the sort of easy listening music that feels like would have gotten really popular already. It's a pretty new record. Like it would play on the radio type thing. Mm-hmm. Where do you discover that stuff? Or um, am I just out of the loop and they're pretty well known? No, they're, I mean, they've been in, well, it's just one guy. Okay. It's Orlando. Right, um, Higginbottom. Higginbottom. <laughs> Best name in the game. Actually, I saw him at Red Rocks with Bonobo and, but I, I get my music from SoundCloud mostly. Mm-hmm. Also just like following the algorithms every once in a while. I also watch a lot of kind of like Boiler Room set. I don't know if you're familiar with the Boiler Room. It's like, um, they were even pre-pandemic doing like live streams of, well, they weren't live streams, but they were filmed 
sessions, DJ sessions inside of a club. So you could watch your your favorite artists like, but you had, it was like him, you could see everything that they're doing. Oh wow. Um, and then people on the comments post the track lists of each set. So maybe you're watching the set and you're like, wow, this song is so good. And then you look at the track list and you find what song that is. Hmm. Um, most of the time, boiler room sets, like you can't keep your eyes off the people dancing in the background. And they're just like the biggest, just like so, so embarrassing. Or like somebody's like on their phone and you're watching your favorite artist and you're like, bro, you're right next to like my favorite yeah, artist of all time. And you're just sitting on your phone, like chain smoking cigarettes. Huh. Um, but that's the scene, you know? So, yep. uh, yeah. So that's where, but before that it was like all blogs, you know, like yep. back in like the, early 2010s ish it was like i remember there was this uh one website called the hype machine yeah Yeah. you know what's funny this is funny this almost feels like a in in an embarrassing uh admission (laughs) but i remember um no embarrassment here i can't remember this was a while ago this would have been like you're saying early 2010s you posted something and I don't even remember what I mean if it was early 2010s I feel like it was probably Twitter because that was kind of pre-Instagram I want to say a bit yeah yeah well because I met you with Lance yeah right yeah yeah that's so crazy at his ranch that was a funny encounter yeah yeah and y'all just like beasted away from me and I was like well I guess I'm not a mountain biker (laughs) (laughs) yeah boy that was a while ago um anyway you shared you shared something, and I want to say it was Hype Machine, and it might still be in your favorite tweets. In my iTunes, oh. and it was like a 20-minute thing, and I was like, this is insane. <laughs> and I've listened to it a million times. Really? While riding or whatever else. Yeah. I mean, I the yeah, that whole generation, like a lot of the people that you hear now, like, like flume for example came from that whole blog world yeah the zeitgeist 2012 damn this is i don't have very much in my itunes library that's so funny all spotify now obviously let me see yeah let me get back to it because they do every year they do the zeitgeist 29 minutes you know for all the listeners who are and as the children say it can't see us i'm so not tired of it Huh, I and mean, this is we're eleven years in, and I still play it, probably monthly. Is it like a mashup of all yeah. of the songs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like some MIA in there, and yeah. it blew my mind, dude. Very 2012, where like everything is mashed up into like everything else. Yeah. <laughs> like girl talk. Did you ever? Yeah, I mean, that? I from the hype machine. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever? Um, Girl talk tra- transitions like every like 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little hectic. <laughs> the collection, does that blog cross your mind at all? Uh-huh. That was one I had on my on my menu bar for a bit. Anyway, uh, how about yeah. Boards of Canada? Yeah. In terms of UK groups. I, I never got like, people get like really into Boards of Canada. There's some Boards of Canada songs that I like, but I never got like the big Boards of Canada bug. Yep. 
there's a there's a guy named Leon Weinhall who I really like, um, who I've also seen in Denver. It was like the last show that I went to before the pandemic, and he's a bit in the show. He's a bit more like it's like harder mm-hmm. and faster. Yep. But his a lot of his music is can also be like kind of ambient and like mm. spacey. But um, he's a he's got good energy. Speaking of Denver. We'll move on from music after this in a minute. But speaking of it, it just reminded me, the last time I went to a concert was Gesoffelstein. Oh, know? dude, you saw Gesoffelstein? Gesoffelstein <laughs> in uh, what is that? It's it's not. It wasn't Red Rocks. French. Was, he's he's French. Speaking of things that go hard. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my god, I was mind blown. Um, yeah, he's just up in there his like big chrome s- suit, smoking cigs and just smashing you with bass. Yeah, that was wild. What was that place called? I've always wanted to see Gesaffelstein. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm usually pretty good at like tugging the thread, picking up a tangent, yeah, and weaving it back in. But that was like <laughs> a pretty thorough like. Oof, I'm feeling a little dead end here. I don't. I'm gonna look back at my notebook and I'm get a, back on track, which I never have to do. I have a. I'm a professional. At, at ADD, just giving into ADD as like this, the warehouse is like my ADD warehouse. Cause I just come here and I'm like, okay, I'm going to build a fire. And then I'm like walking around and like, maybe it's dirty. So I'm going to clean and then I'm going to paint and then I'm going to make music and then I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And yeah. I just, I'll be here for like eight hours and I just do like 18 different things. So that actually reminds me of what I wanted to ask, which was perfect. at what point did you start to notice, get excited about, care about aesthetic, art, creativity? Because you said the entry point was kind of fashion. Yeah. Um, to be fair, I, I did dress like a douchebag when I was like in my early 20s, but I was into fashion. <laughs> but I look well, at pictures of myself, I'm like, oh my God. I think probably everyone feels Everybody, that Everybody, right? But especially someone uh, probably a lot of athletes feel that way because you're young you're famous and you make a really a a lot of money when you're young and there's a certain like culture and status chase probably that you just fall in that i think everyone probably falls into that's in that position to to an extent was that the entry point for you and then art came on the heels of that or I would say so. I feel like the I've always been interested in aesthetic things that look good, um, like whether it's architecture or a painting or an outfit. Um, I've always been interested in things that make me feel good, like music. Uh, but the creation of art came more from a place of of recognizing that here is this thing that has no rules and I can do it and there's no result attached to it. There's no specific way that I have to do it. I don't have to hold a certain power for any amount of time. (laughs) I don't have to do it for more than I don't want to. I also don't have to stop doing it if I want to keep going. So it was this thing that came into my life that went against this sensibility that 
I knew from what I did for a living for, you know, my whole, my whole life up until that point. So it was really therapeutic to just be like, I can paint something. If I don't like it, I just paint over it. Hmm. And then that adds to it. And then I paint another thing and I can, maybe I like it, but I'm just like, you know, fuck you. I'm going to paint over you. I like it. But like that, it's, you know, (laughs) it's my world and I can do whatever I want. And, um, that was really like what I loved about it from the start. And then since then, you know, of course, continuing that journey, you want to make things that have, uh, leave some sort of profound impact on you or, you know, it's really, I, I would share everything that I made like with my family and with my friends. So it's like to make sure that they, I, I would always forward things to people that I loved and I wanted mm-hmm. them to see the things that I made. And if they were into it, then sweet, but I didn't never really felt like I needed to like blast it out to the universe that I need some sort of uh, validation that mm. I'm like a good artist. It was more about like, fuck, look what I made, you know, <laughs> this is crazy. I have no idea how I made this, but I made it. And I think it kind of means this to me, but somebody else sees it and they're like, Oh, this, I didn't see that at all. Like for me, it means this. And that's the beauty of, of my, like my art. I feel like, um, is that it can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Interesting. When when did you pick up a pencil, pen, paintbrush, whatever it is? Do you, do you remember picking picking something yeah. up for the first time with the intent of like <clears throat> I'm going to make something right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I when I was a kid, I would draw a lot in school, especially when I when we moved to Italy. Like I said, when I was twelve, I went to imagine going. Imagine you're 12 years old and your parents decide they want to move to Italy. And then you're already like, you're 12, your body's changing. Everything is really confusing and weird. And then all of a sudden you're in a classroom filled with kids who all speak a different language than you. But it was kind of a English heavy school. So a lot of the kids spoke English, but I didn't speak Italian. And so that first year, like the whole school year, I, any class that was all Italian, I would just draw because I was there in the class for an hour. And occasionally they'd be like, you know, Taylor. <laughs> and I'd be like, I don't still don't I still don't speak Italian. So, <laughs> um, so I would draw a lot then, I remember. And then um when I started painting was later was when I was 24 and I had broken my leg in May of 2014. And then it wasn't until like November, December, like the winter time I was, um, really, uh, in love with this old friend of mine. Um, and she's an, she's a, painter and she kind of left painting aside she was really talented and I don't know she had a toxic relationship with it so I was like oh well like let's paint I'm interested in it but also as an excuse for like us to hang out (laughs) (laughs) and um 
I laid out like this giant drop cloth on my on the floor of my apartment and then had all this canvas and paints everywhere but a blank canvas is like super intimidating for a lot of people a lot of artists and myself included at the at the start and so I ended up just the first painting that I did was just on the drop cloth because it's like Hmm. white as well and it was basically just like there was some spilled paint and then I just went in with the brush and started moving it around and then I just kept going you know we didn't we never got together but we we were very close friends yeah yeah but she was like like the catalyst of this kind of change in my life and um people can do that for you so that's pretty cool yeah can you talk a little bit about kind of the interest growing and solidifying was it uh an outlet that you just needed and it like you said it just sort of organically came about and it filled time or did you approach it more analytically and started educating yourself and like researching doing history did you just follow your nose yeah not really i mean one of the things that um this woman her name is sophia what she told me uh was like just do you don't need to know what you're doing just do it and so i took that really to heart and i've taken that to heart with pretty much every like most things that i that i do creatively is to find mentors who are people not go completely out of my way to find these mentors but if they're close by like say yes to encounters and then mostly just do your own thing and try to cultivate that thing as much as you can so yeah I didn't really learn I didn't like now if I was going to get into it now I would watch YouTube videos on like how to make color combinations and like yada 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 but at that point I wasn't so much into YouTube university (laughs) and uh, I was more just into like playing with the colors and kind of like tripping out on like abstract shapes and just like painting really furiously and then kind of like looking at this thing and trying to see what the thing wanted to be like what it what it what it looked like to me because uh, your brain is always trying to form abstract concepts into ideas that like quote unquote make sense um, so I was I would just follow that kind of like spontaneous wave and then with that come a lot of words like as you know from this interview I have a lot of words inside me so <laughs> so it's like uh, just if I would have little epiphanies or like little words or re- reoccurring thoughts it's like just put that out there and then put everything out like as vulnerable as you can be because you can always just paint over it hmm. and now I recognize the power of doing all of that is that like the essence of a of an art piece is it's like an energetic object and the more energy you put into the thing the more kind of like glow and magnetism it has just if we're getting like a little metaphysical Mm -hmm. um 
so that's also why I like to use like uh, like I'll pick up like pieces of uh, paper from that I find on the ground or like posters that are from town and like just feel like making as much of a collage like as much of like a chaotic thing as possible but it's like housed inside of this painting and then on the front of it is the actual painting but behind the painting are like layers and layers of other paintings and like different stories and hmm. different kind of worlds so interesting yeah that only you know about potentially the yeah exactly i mean the a lot of artists do that like um they have some technology with where they've been able to look at like Picasso's paintings and they can like kind of x-ray them mm. and see that there's like a whole different series of paintings underneath. And then, I mean, my first, I guess I should say my first art teacher, again, using the quotes, uh, was Basquiat. Like I was super into Jean-Michel Basquiat from a young age. And then I got reacquainted with his work when I started painting again so I just kind of like had this thought in my mind of like whatever I make like do, okay a do I like it b would Jean-Michel Basquiat like this <laughs> and then <laughs> <That's cool>. <laughs> <laughs> and then c would Sophia like this interesting so it's kind of like I have like the the mentors like dead living and then you know, what does my heart actually say about it? Hmm. So How has that evolved? Because presumably you're not painting for those people anymore. No. Um, yeah, it's evolved um, in... Uh, there. Were, it's... I guess I've, I've been attempting to bridge the gap between uh, creating for therapy and for creating uh, as a commercial outlet, mm -hmm. um, which is something that I wanted to protect myself from for as long as I could. So I didn't, like, for example, retire from bike racing and then just, like, try to sell all of my paintings immediately because I didn't feel like I... I recognize that, like, yeah, there's, like, relevance there and, like, you can capitalize on this moment, but it, that wasn't why I made paintings in the first place. They weren't so that I could uh, sell them. Um, but now uh, I like musical toys, hmm. and I find that I sell paintings, I sell art so that I can buy music equipment <laughs> uh, which is like a, an interesting trade yeah. trade-off balance art um, for art yeah and I also recognize that like as an artist you can much in the way as like a DJ can you can curate a space to feel a certain way and so I'm like I've done two mural projects in in Girona and I they're both like not really what you see here like in the studio they're kind of a different vibe so painting it's like playing music like you play music for yourself and it sounds one way but if you play music for other people then it sounds like it's totally different and so painting for yourself versus painting for other people 
it's it's different and it's like um and i like it uh so right now i i don't have i don't have the ghost of jean michel <laughs> over my shoulder because i also feel like i've kind of grown out of that and he's become like incredibly i mean he was always popular but he's become like even more mainstream in the last like eight years and that's not really what i'm trying trying to go for necessarily um and there's a lot of people who kind of do his style um and then yeah as long as my my i mean my mom likes everything that i make but <laughs> as long as my friends like it like kasha also likes everything that i make so she's she's too easy <laughs> too easy on me there's a I'm sure you know this, but there's a big piece of yours in Durango. Yeah, actually, downtown. somebody bought that. So somebody out of, out of the out of the coffee shop. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that was for sale. Yeah, so I've had some cool interactions with like because those are like I guess I have like a series of original pieces from let's say 2015 until 2019. Um, and they're like really big and like wild and multicolored and have a lot of like intensity. And so that piece that you're talking about, somebody, they they took it down or something, or they were taking all the paintings down at bread in the coffee shop in Durango. And then this guy just reached out to me randomly and was like, hey, my wife loves this piece. Like, can I buy it? And I was like, yeah, of course, because sweet, you know? Yeah. How did that painting end up in bread? Uh, my friend Richard, um, it was yeah he was he was buddies with the guy who started bread. Rob, yeah. Who passed away? Passed away, yeah. Uh, but this was before he passed away, so he wanted to. He was just like, hey, they have a bunch of art hanging on the wall. Like, yeah. do you want to put a piece up there? And I was like. I have paintings everywhere, so sure. Nice. <laughs> and he like framed it, and because it was just rolled up, kind of like that one, and so he framed it, and then they put it up on the wall. Interesting. Um, do you? And I want to credit Nicole for this question. Actually, I thought this was an amazing question that she she mentioned yesterday. Do you have any of your art in your home? And uh, if yeah. so. Well, which one like why did you pick those that you have in your home um well is your home filled with art pieces that you've made or is it a select <laughs> special much, few yeah pretty much yeah. yeah both the my home here and also in boulder because mm-hmm. um, like i said about the i mean my home in boulder like was my art studio for a long time so um, as you start making more and more things, you need a place to put them. And then incorporating this concept of like uh, curating space for yourself or for other people, um, making things that then you live with for a long period of time. Like there's a certain amount of power in that, in their way, in the way that they can inform your day to day, like feelings or perception of yourself or um, give you some sort of direction. Uh, Mm. So I have paintings in my house, yeah. Nice. 
at this point, it, it sounds like your artistic <clears throat> process is very much uh, like there's th almost lax process in a way, I guess. Like there, there isn't too much structure around it, potentially. Is that fair to say? Like you don't yeah. have studio hours or no. I guess it's become you mentioned the commercial aspect, like potentially there's more structure kind of entering in that way. But how would you in general, how would you describe your artistic process because it sounds like at the beginning it was, it was it was an outlet i don't maybe not like a coping sort of no, mechanism it was a, but it, it was, was an a, escape from an escape yeah 100% and and a therapy therapy and a way to like understand myself yep that was my main the main thing that i would take away from any piece that i made was that it was like i would look at it 6 months later a year later or 2 years later and i would be like i knew that this thing was going to happen or I knew this thing about myself then that I know now, but I know I didn't know it then, but I still mm. made this thing that kind of acted as like, I think of it like when you find a new trail from like one place to another and then you like have this moment in your brain where like it like links together and you... The map connects. Yeah, the map connects and yeah. it like expands a little bit. Yeah. I feel like painting and making art is like that for me and was like that because um, I went through a period where I was just painting like all the time now things are I'm trying to be a little bit more routined with things because it's I don't have to escape from like my life anymore <laughs> and um, I also really like have a great time all the time whether it's riding bikes or like playing with the music or just like sitting and making a fire when there's no backdraft um, <laughs> or painting. Um, but the painting is, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that it's taken a backseat, but it's become more of like a, um, less of a therapy and more of like a, like a commercial bit of a, not, commercial endeavor but it's like I recognize that I can kind of sustain myself with this thing so it's like trying to find the balance between creation for creation and then creation for analog synthesizers <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 interesting it sounds like your life doesn't have obviously very uh, different structure wise than than during your race career, but if you, despite this sort of ADD situation that you described where you come into your studio and you could do nine different things in an hour, how much time are you allotting to each of these things or does it completely change? Like if you're, if you have different buckets here and one is making music, messing with music, one is making art, playing in the forest, supporting Kasha at races, which I want to talk about too. It's interesting that you remain that involved with cycling. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's, does, that's my number one priority. Is, so no. Fair enough. <laughs> On the right. Let the record be shown. Let the, let the, let, that let the record my show. My relationship is my number one priority. Um, like how, how does all that shake out and what does it feel like to be in that situation where you have these different interests 
and as far as I can tell, other than maybe Kasha, there aren't there isn't really anyone telling you what to do or asking things specifically of you. Yeah. Um, is that hard or does it feel like the best thing ever (laughs) or somewhere Um, in between for me, for me personally, it's, I couldn't imagine not doing it the, this way. Yeah. So for me, it's, it's the best. It's not the, um, it's not, like sunshine and and roses and rainbows or whatever the phrase is all the time um but i mean i'll i'll i can break down my routine for you sure i mean we haven't talked about the gym yet yeah that's an important part as of late yeah i don't even know if i could list all of like the things that i'm interested in that i love because there's so many of them but um I would say that I, I recognize, like, a lot of people are like, oh, I have ADD, like, that's bad, and I don't want to have ADD. And I feel like I'm just in a position where I can just embrace it, and I'm like, um, I can do all of the different things, and I don't have to get frustrated that I lose focus on one thing, because then I just want to go ride my BMX bike or I want to go to the gym. So my routine, I've broken it down instead of doing like, and this is subject to change over time, (laughs) obviously, (laughs) but I, I haven't broken it down into like a daily routine of like, I wake up and I do this, this, but, um, I think being on the schedule of humanity, like we're always on this weekly schedule just if everybody else is on it, like you're kind of on it to a certain extent, especially here where people are really predictable. So mm-hmm. like Sunday at lunchtime, like is the quietest time you could ever be outside or do anything like any criminal activity you want to get into, do it <laughs> Sunday lunchtime. Like <laughs> no one's out there and the sun is shining. It's beautiful, but like no one's outside. Not that it has to be criminal. It can be like riding your bike, for example, but so Monday, I do emails because Monday is Monday, right? Is today Monday? No. Yeah. Today's Monday. Monday. Have you done emails yet, Taylor? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I did emails, sent out an invoice this morning, you know? Nice. Uh, I do emails and gym on Mondays. Tuesday is my forest maintenance day. This is already way more structured than I expected. Well, it's... It gets loose. Okay. Wednesday, I come to the warehouse. Uh, The idea is I'm trying to be here by 10 a.m. Usually I get here like 12. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But I try. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like you're late for school, but then you don't actually have a school to go to. So you're like, (laughs) every Wednesday, you know. Yes! (laughs) You know, doesn't matter. I'm going to get here whenever I want. Just because it takes me so long to do everything. You can talk to Kasha about that, maybe. Um, <laughs> Thursday is another gym day. And it's Thursday is about, it was originally supposed to be about bikes. So like bike maintenance kind of day. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's like bike exploration day. Or I just order another set of handlebars because I'm addicted to handlebars for whatever reason. Okay, hang All on. We're going to pause there. We're going to pause on Thursday. <laughs> All shapes and sizes. Yeah. 
Uh, what do you What do you mean? I mean that is <laughs> I've never really dwelled on that thought, but it's very true. Handlebars are wonderfully diverse. Yeah. Um, Just obsessed with them. It's an interesting cultural symbol in a way, like the shape of your handlebars, the width. Yeah. Whether your drop bars flare a little or not, mm-hmm. whether they're super narrow and in New York City, like all of these things say something. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm really into like a riser sweat back bar right now, flat bar. Um, and there's just so many degrees mm-hmm. that the sweep can be at. Yeah. And then the rise as well and how that it just changes the ride completely. Yeah. Um, and I find that having a little bit of a, like, I don't like riding just a flat bar, flat bar, cause it's not really ergonomic for like riding a long distance, I guess when I go to the bike park or something and I'm like, or if I'm riding the BMX bike, it's like, makes sense to have that, like be planted right there. But the kind of riding that I do is so much like. Uh, just it's it's too fluid to be that serious so I need a little bit of a rake back sweat sweep back makes sense cool and yeah I also just love the look of them the shape of them and so anytime anybody comes out with a new bar I'm like gotta try it what's this about <laughs> nice cool um, on flat bars have you ever tried so on my bike over there right now, I have a pretty classic XC bar with a bit of sweep back, uh-huh. but rotate it down so it droops a little bit. Oh, have you ever tried that? No. So that's kind of a there was a there was a top. It's very subtle right now, but yeah. but it's there. Yeah. Um, but I mean your performance though. Right, but that was a trend that actually this guy Yaroslav Kulhavi started when he was absolutely throwing down on the World Cup. And he did two crazy things. One, he angled the saddle of his nose down like crazy, uh-huh. partly because the climbs were super steep, but also he realized that when you have a proper amount of sag in your rear suspension and you sit on your bike, yeah, the saddle goes level when you sit on it. Huh. And like no one was thinking about that, so everyone was having like right. nose up a little. And that makes like, sense. Oh, oh. But then he also, I don't know why, but he, he had his flat bars droopy like that. Yeah. And it's in like, my U23 days, I was like, I want to, I want to be like your Arslav. I want to, and it's awesome. I still do it. <laughs> yeah. It kind of has like a hell, there's like a hell's angels imagery there. A uh-huh. little bit. Or like a cafe racer. Yeah. Anyway, that was Thursday, I think Friday. Yeah. And then I have a three day weekend. So <laughs> what does that look like? Uh, that's usually I come to the warehouse and let, let myself fly free uh we usually go on like one larger bike ride on the weekends saturday or sunday um there's i like to say that there's only two people well it's not that i like to say this but uh i believe i i'm holding out hope for the rest of the world but there's only two people that are capable of like going my speed for an all-day adventure and those people are David and Kasha so David is my partner in art and Kasha is my partner in life and we 
if we're all together and Kasha's not racing, we'll go on the 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 best ride is the Dos Kiwis ride, which is this brewery. Mm-hmm. But you ride to the ocean first, and then you ride to Dos Kiwis on the way back. And it's like no matter what, we always end up coming home at like 10 p.m. And no matter when we leave, it's like an it's just an epic ride. It's only a hundred k's total, but it's um, I'm like I'm always trying to find the best route, you know like where you see no cars it's all dirt uh now we're i'm into like the all trail mode trying to get it like so we can get out there and it's like i love the feeling when you just like descend to your destination and you haven't like touched any of the roads or like Mm. anything that you even knew but you're like just right there and um but we stop a lot yeah (laughs) And I don't what do you really mean ride by very fast? So you're saying those, those two are the only ones willing to ride at such a leisurely. It's like it's leisurely, but then at times it's like very aggressive. Okay, interesting. And then, but it's playful. It's all yeah. about being playful. So like, they don't have any ego at all, and I don't either. So we can play and like sprint for town signs, but like we just kind of recoup and like, and and then they're, they're, they're just ready to be outside all day. And I find that a lot of people are like, okay, we're gonna go for a ride. And they're like, you know, counting down the time. It's like, okay, we're riding, but it's like four hour ride or, okay, we're gonna do a six hour ride today, like big day and so we ride, the ride is maybe like five hours, but we're out there for like nine hours, you know? And we'll go to the, in the summer, we go to the beach and like jump in the water and mm-hmm. we're like chilling on the beach for a while and then kind of come back with the sunset. And so it's like, and in the winter, you, we don't have the light. So we bring lights with us and you bring like a puffy jacket. And it's like, there's this whole kind of mentality around like, just being prepared to be outside all day. Mm-hmm. And I try to communicate that with other people. Like we try to bring other people on the Dos Kiwis ride. And it just always gets to a point where like you can tell they're not having a good time. They're fraying. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I told you, like you bring a puffy jacket. Like I told you to bring one, you know? And uh, they're like, no, but it's fine. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> it's not fine, like, but whatever. So I, uh, yeah, so I'm very fortunate. It's interesting to me that Kasha Light, is that also how you pronounce her name? Uh Uh-huh. It surprises me a little bit that she, based on her career, loves that sort of riding so much. Like right now, based on where she is in her career. Yeah. I mean, for those that don't know. Not always. Okay. It's a seasonal thing. It's uh, like once a month. Yeah. Uh, But you can... Well, I mean, for can, for those that for those that don't know, um, she's one of the I don't know three best, fastest, strongest. I'm texting her right now. Riders in the in the women's peloton, um, and with that, you know, kind of uh, I feel like comes a mandatory level of structure and all the stuff that you spent a while doing as well, adherence to a training plan. that sort of thing it's pretty cool that you found someone who is so game for a a little true adventure on the side 
Yeah. I mean, along she, with that career. She, she, I will break before she breaks. Really? I mean, she'll break mentally in the sense that she's like, I'm tired of going this slow. Like, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> let's just get there. But in terms of an adventure, like, she's physically way more capable than I am at at this point now in my life maybe like five years ago um I could keep up with her but it it's cool to have a partner that you can just go like and she was she just grew up doing this like Mm. she grew up in rural Poland and going out on like big adventures with her parents and or with her friends and just being she just grew up outside you know like picking wild blueberries and stuff <laughs> um and so it's in her dna to want to just be outside all the time and it's also some somehow in my dna as well so mm-hmm. it's it's really nice to be able when it doesn't always happen cuz she's training and racing and her life is serious but when she has a it's like an easy day for her but it's still a five-hour ride that we are all like totally fries me and david and then kasha will go do like five hours the next day with intervals and whatever and i'm like like, i don't know how you do that but what is it what's it like for you at this point to be so adjacent to that world still to to someone to live with someone who is you know at the peak of their career very focused yeah on that world is uh, there ever any like friction personally for you there like is it hard or are you yeah, still was, a big fan of the sport and like like being that close to it uh it was frustrating at, at first because i wanted to just i was like i've dreamed my whole life of like not having to think about this particular sport or like r- have my calendar kind of revolve around the calendar of the sport. Um, but you just get over yourself at some point. And like, it took me like a year and a half to <laughs> submit. <laughs> and then, um, you know, being with her is more important than me not wanting to be around professional road racing. And the reality is like, if I'm around road racing, I'm around women's cycling, which yeah. I actually really like. And I only watch women's cycling mm. primarily. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I went, the only races I go watch are also women's races. So I, I like to be, I like to feel like um, I have something, something in common with all of the people that she races with, like with her team that like I can go to her race and I can sit at the dinner table with the team and it's not weird because I'm not just some random guy. But like, I mean, I am some random guy, but I've been there before. Like I've been at that dinner table before and I've had this same stupid conversation about like how so-and-so is an idiot in the bunch. And I've made the same like stupid like Euro jokes that you have at the dinner table. And so like I've, I like understand that world. And so it's, it's okay to be, it's nice to just step into it for a second and also not have any male energy around, um, which I think was most of what like cracked me about the sport in itself was the environment and the way that people 
kind of acted and um so and the people were i felt like people were like so they didn't want to nobody was stoked to be there mm -hmm. you know and i was like if we're none of us are stoked to be here like why are we here you know uh so it seems like on the women's side they're a little bit more like positive i would say uh at hmm. least at least in kasha's little yeah. bubble and they're they're more like naturally driven and it just seems like there's more passion involved so yeah there i mean without a doubt the women's peloton is in a really exciting growth curve right now so it makes sense that there'd be a bit more momentum and enthusiasm in certain ways yeah um and it's less ego-y it's like there's less mm. money involved which there should be more money involved obviously but with less money comes less ego and people that everybody's more friendly and it's not this like weird um it's not all this like mind manipulation stuff happening <laughs> do you think that there's anything that could help improve the health of that environment in professional cycling? Or do you think it's just a natural human result of competition and elite athletics and like a bunch of alpha males competing? Um, yeah, I think maybe like once, once all of the old once all of the old people who have kind of been in control for a long time, maybe this is like a, like a unrealistic millennial dream. <laughs> uh, but like if Patrick Lefebvre like didn't exist, the sport would be better. Yeah. You know, like there's people in the sport that are just like making it this kind of alpha male, like, prove yourself at all times kind of environment and there's not enough job security to make people feel comfortable enough or stable enough with their lives so everybody feels a bit like under the thumb and then what you're reaching for is to please somebody who is like not to say all team managers are bad people but it's very much a business at the top and it's a business run by old rich white dudes yeah uh which is sounds like a lot of the rest of the world you know <laughs> and so that's why i say maybe it's like a this millennial fantasy that will never happen because that'll just keep getting passed on to the next generation but i like to think that the people that are getting into sport now and are maybe a little more like like expressive, a little more sentimental, uh, maybe more passionate, but I could be completely wrong because I'm kind of removed. <laughs> yeah, and interesting. It, it also seems like the opposite is happening. Like people are, you know, learning how to calculate all of their power numbers by the age of like 13. And yeah. then they're like super robotic before they even get into the actual racing side of it. So. I don't really know, but um, it starts at the top mm. and it was, it's like too big of a mountain. It was a mountain that I saw and I was like, I don't want to climb this mountain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be involved in this. At what point did you 
did that tipping point start happening where you started to see that landscape for what it was rather than this young blind ambition for glory and winning yeah. um, and you realized <clears throat> that maybe you were more of like a, a cog in a big machine and you wanted to step off yeah I think it was really when I broke my leg and then I started painting and um, it was ha being able to remove myself from the environment because I'd been in the environment since I was 17 like at a high level um because I would have met you like when I was 19 yeah and I was like already at that point getting paid quite a lot of money as like an under 23 and I was had gone to the Olympics and I was like trying to go to the world tour and then was world tour by the age of 20 and then the actually the whole like uh relationship with Lance was like my first um, kind of taste of business, mm. like what business relationships actually mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. And so maybe, I guess they say like never meet your heroes, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so I guess there were a couple like never meet your hero moments that I had throughout my career. And then um, once I actually stepped away and I realized like, oh, most of the world like doesn't care about this sport at all. <laughs> but here I am. And I think it's like the most important thing ever, you know, because my my parents did it and it's I make all of this money and I have all of these hopes and dreams. But like maybe. Maybe it's not right for me you know and i think my my major catalyst was that my relationship with the bike was becoming to was starting to become toxic and i felt like the bicycle is like the greatest thing that we all have that we all share in common yeah. and if there's anything that i want to protect it's my relationship with the bike and i don't want to i knew so many people who finished their careers and they like never touched the bike again yeah you know, because they're like, I can't deal with it. And I'm like, that seems like a big sacrifice. And I would rather like keep my relationship with the bike, but like say bye bye to all the big money and all the attention and and this like high pressure environment that is really only going to like eat me up and, and spit me out. If you look at like somebody like Mark Cavendish, for example, who's like the most deserving person of a contract thing. <laughs> and then he's like struggling to get a contract in his one of his final years like there's just not there's no it feels like the sport is kind of like devoid of this like respect for itself hmm. and um i think that it's something to do with the just it's just seems like it just happens in the in the road side though i honestly i wish that i would have just like started mountain biking at a younger age because hmm. that's what I end up doing now. Mm -hmm. um, but you can say you wish you did this and did that. And at the end of the day, I, I do firmly believe that like everything that led up to this moment is was like meant to be. And yeah. that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And also road cycling paid for like, you know, the house that I have in Boulder and the life that I live now. So 
I'm eternally grateful to the that kind of sacrifice for that. What was it like to start to explore how all of the other broad, like the broadness of the bike, all of the other ways that it could be experienced, like riding to the coast and going swimming and then riding yeah. to a brewery in the dark. Like yeah. What was it like to go from, because based on what I know about your trajectory, like that sort of childhood playfulness phase um, was largely skipped or, or really foreshortened. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you almost had like, I've had, I've heard people talk before about how you almost had this predetermined path in part based on who your parents were in part because you ended up being supremely talented and everyone automatically has that they just place this like you must fulfill this talent sort of thing on you yeah and so you had the this, next you're the next one yeah you're and so next. you have this incredibly narrow lane from a very young age that you're allowed to explore with the bike yeah but later on I mean, we were talking about handlebars earlier. You've got who knows how many different shaped handlebars. Yeah, yeah. BMX handlebars. Yeah, well, I mean, what was it like to to broaden out? Like, was did it just blow your mind? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I grew up as like a. I like to say that. I, I keep saying this. I like to say, um, I grew up as a, as more of a session athlete. Hmm. Like I would we would go skiing and I would just want to do laps of the park. Like I just wanted to do jumps and, um, biking was kind of the same. Like I always wanted to mountain bike, like going on road rides with my parents was like just the worst. I didn't, I didn't want to do that, you know, but they was like, no, nope, we're going. And it's like, all right, I guess I'm going too. And then you eventually get into it and you get kind of competitive and you're like, okay, I'm going to drop all these old people and then you then i would <laughs> at like the age of 14 or whatever and um but before that it was like i would find a jump with my friends and we would just it would be like off the bike path and we'd just go back and forth like doing this jump all the time like better and better and better or, or worse or I'll crash or whatever so i always had this desire in me when it came to sport of just finding flow with things and not necessarily pushing them to their physical max hmm. um but then you know uh life life evolves and i was also competitive i also wanted to i think being the son of a of two great athletes definitely was kind of like okay what's my ticket like how am I going to prove myself in this kind of environment? And then uh, you you've kind of find that thing and do it for a while. Meanwhile, training in Boulder, like I never, I was never really into road biking, ironically. <laughs> like I remember doing my first two hour ride by myself and I was like, that was the longest, like most <laughs> arduous thing I've done. Like how hard is this, you know? Um, and I was like 16 or 17 or something. And, um, but I remember what I always really liked was like 
we would go north of Boulder and then you take all the dirt roads and the roads. And I, like, I loved riding on the dirt roads. And then, um, a lot of the races in Boulder would have like some dirt sections or like dirt climbs. And a lot of the roads up in the mountains also have dirt. So, um, that was something that I just liked, but this was pre like pre gravel determination that like this was a different thing. A discipline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so then, uh, like as my career evolves, I somehow convinced my team to let that, to let me coach myself in my last year, which was like the real, just like nail in the coffin. Like, <laughs> like um, cause I felt like every time I would go out and ride, like I was also balancing this thing where I would like paint or make music and, uh, up until like two or three or four in the morning sometimes, cause I would just get into this flow yep. and, um, you know, smoking weed helps with that occasionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was like my escape of like, I'm living this dual life of like, I'm this like wild artist at night. And then I wake up and I'm like hella tired and I like have to go train now (laughs) and so then I felt like I was just I could never do anything that the my coach wanted me to do because I'd never I also didn't want to plan anything um because I felt too restricted so eventually I was just like I'm gonna coach myself and they're like they said yes and I was like wow okay (laughs) and so I would just (laughs) I'm sure they also were like all right this this could be our last our yeah, last yeah. Uh, it's gonna our go last option one or two ways <laughs> um but yeah i started putting like a little chunkier um tires on my road bike i was always like in the last couple years of my career i would always put like as big a tires on the road bike that i had and actually the cannondale um their road bike like allowed for some pretty good tires so i ended up getting these like schwalbe g1 tires that were like 30 three or I don't think they were 35 but they had like a little bit of a little bit of chunk on them and then I would just end up I would just end up like mountain biking on my road bike (laughs) and because I couldn't it was like I would go from I would be on a road and be like okay I have to take this gravel road I would get on the gravel road but then as soon as I got on the gravel road I would see a trail I'm like I have to follow the trail you know I want to be in with the earth not like separate so so yeah then i um then the rest is history (laughs) then i actually bought this bike this um the first bicycle i've ever bought which is a crust dreamer Hmm. um was bought through the a shop in la called golden saddle cyclery yeah r.i.p yeah recently closed right yeah but that shop going into that shop actually had a huge impact on my understanding of bikes and why like what i liked about bikes and what interested me about bikes going forward and that's how i met ron ultra romance ron and um just that the like okay ron is ron and like and his partner aria and like that whole crew they all i can ride we ride the same speed yeah 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 (laughs) You know, uh, it's like, yeah. Nice. You do well in Durango too. There are a lot of people who appreciate the bike in similar ways. 
Yeah. Um, I feel like kind of stupid that I, whenever I'm in Boulder, because I'm like, this place sucks. Like, you can't ride a mountain bike from Boulder and do yeah. anything but like two things. You do the same thing all the time. Yeah. And when you're here, you do like, in Girona, you just go any direction. I find new trails like every time I ride. This is the the only place that I've found so far that reminds me of Durango in some regards. Nice. Um, I'm just sold. in terms of the access and stuff. And also, I don't think this really happens here per se. Maybe it does. But in Durango, weirdly, I feel like oftentimes the pros are almost looked down on. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. poor, poor you <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of thing. That's a very Colorado kind of mentality. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Not so much here. No. Yeah, interesting. You bench pressed your body weight today. I was trying to think what else. <laughs> you just came yeah. from a, from big a, news. a big, fitness PR. Big W. It's just... Yeah, yeah. I got a KOM on Strava today in the gym. <laughs> in the gym. <laughs> That's yeah. fun. Congrats on that. Yeah, you know, I'm just trying to... Have you seen the movie Pumping Iron? The Schwarzenegger one? Yeah. No, but I oh, love bro. it. You got to watch that movie. Legendary? I've seen it three times, and I just showed Kasha when we were in France. And I'm just trying to. I just want the want the want a bit of cleavage, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Still after that aesthetic. Yeah, but like it feels nice to be strong mm. and lift things without like grabbing your back. Like yeah, a, do you feel like healthier now than you did when you were racing professionally? Uh, yeah, I feel more, I feel more whole yeah. and less out of, less out of balance. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I miss the shine of the, like, you know, when your legs are like really nice yeah. and fit and like tan. Yeah, I feel like a weapon. Yeah, I, lo- I miss that a little bit, but at the same time... I don't miss like the my legs like talking with my legs all the time because I felt like that's what biking was is that it's like how do I feel how do you feel how do you, how do you feel uh, how's the left one how's the right one like oh yeah yeah but now I'm like I talk to my whole body you know and I prefer to talk to my upper body in fact I'm over my lower body a little bit my lower body also doesn't want to hear me talk so much. So. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to talk about? You gave us a lot of time. Thank you. Yeah, man. Um, no, I guess one thing I was thinking about before we had this conversation was just about like community hmm. and trying to cultivate community in a place. But we didn't really touch on that. So. Let's, I mean, if unless you have somewhere to be, let's talk about it. Just It's just... Um, I feel like coming from a, an individual sport... Mm-hmm which is a team sport. It's an individual sport masked as a team sport. Um, you spend a lot of time uh, thinking about yourself, what you need to do for yourself. And I even see this with with Kasha, and I remember this of when I was racing, that I was like a lot less, uh, I would not lean into social hmm. environments. I would back out of things quite often or I would make plans with people and I would always change those plans and um, so something that's like very 
that I'm kind of trying to be very straight up with right now is if I make plans with people, I do those things. Hmm. And it's like, I don't make plans to do things with people if I don't really want to. And then I try not to, I have no problem like rearranging the schedule, but I feel like it's too easy nowadays to be like, uh, can we do next week? Or like, because like the community that you live in is like very important. I find, especially as a foreigner in a country where I speak the language, but not so well. So, um, I just encourage everybody to become as much a part of their community as they possibly can. That's a really interesting observation. When, when are you like, do you have these realizations on long rides while you're painting in, uh, in any and all phases? Cause like clearly there's been a lot of reflection. <laughs> at, well, I mean, it, I'm a reflective person. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, it's healthy, obviously to, to reflect like that. Um, and it's, it's a skill to some degree, probably too. Um, and I'm sure some of it has just been like part of your process of survival, like getting, getting through significant injury, confusing stuff with career, all these different things. Like you've had to process stuff over the years, hard stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk to you is, is like you've, you've lived such a unique life um, and, and shown a real willingness to like not guard others from your experience. Like you're willing to share that experience. Um, and I think it's, there's some people who could probably really learn some things or like benefit from, from your experience and that openness. Like, uh, obvious ones like other pro cyclists or whatever um but i also think that like you over the years you've had bike riding art like these are flow state sort of experiences where a lot of reflecting can happen just traditionally for humans Mm. and it seems like you really gravitate towards those things and it's interesting to to hear your learnings i appreciate you being so willing to yeah. share them just like that the 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 inwardness versus outwardness thought is like really significant and it's so true it just made me think about my own tendencies you know as an athlete because you're always putting yourself first yeah it's interesting yeah i mean i did it for a long time i would say that uh and this is going to sound like a joke but it's not really a joke <laughs> when i took the break off of my bmx bike my whole life changed Hmm. because all of a sudden you're riding this thing. Like when you first get on a B, I don't know if you ride BMX. That's where I like, that was my entry point. But like when you first get on a BMX after being like a mountain biker or especially a road biker, you're like, Whoa, like this thing feels crazy sketch. And then you try to imagine like not having brakes and you're just like, nah, there's no way. Like, it's not, I can't do that. But then eventually you're like, okay, well, it makes sense aesthetically that I would not have a break because I don't like seeing this break here. And also the best guys in the world, they ride with no brakes. So like, it's like skateboarding. They don't have brakes. But when you 
then okay so you take the brake off your bike and now all of a sudden it's like whatever speed you have you have to know like with certainty that you can either stop like go around whatever's in front of you like the path that you have through the world is immediately like hyper focused because you have no other choice you can't zone out and like coming from road cycling like zoning out was the goal Hmm. The goal of going on a long ride is like, I hope I just zone out and I don't, and I come back and I'm like, oh, hey, it's over. But with <laughs> BMX, it's like all focus in like to what you're doing. And since I've done that, I feel like that kind of mentality, like bleeding into other things and mixing with the vinyl is like really similar to that because you you're getting these two machines to run that are running at different speeds. Like you're get, you're like calibrating them to have the music that's playing out of them play at the same time. And it's like every, it's always either going too fast or too slow. So you have to like manipulate these two waves mm. to be going then at the same time. And it's full focus. You can't think about anything else. And um, so both of those activities have been good, like mental preparation uh, exercises for me. Yeah. And I feel like they've changed the way that I do stuff. So, Yeah, I remember opening BMX Plus at one point and seeing someone riding street brakeless for the first time. And I was like, oh, it blew my mind. It's so much possible. It's so fun, though. Yeah. Because you start going like faster and faster because you get a little bit more comfortable. And then uh, it's, it's like all you're like, you are with the flow of humanity as well. That's another part of that I like about it is you're not separate. You're like with everything that's happening. You have to move with it. Yeah. And I feel like the music is the same in the sense that you, it's not about you. Like it is about you and your tastes, but it's about moving people and bringing people together and creating something like energetically some sort of warmth in a place that was cold before you know yeah interesting cool are you are you riding bmx and like throwing bar spins and no i have no tricks no tricks i mean i manual a little bit dude manualing's hard i know bar spins way easier than manualing you really have to dedicate yourself to the BMX if you want to be yeah. hucking big tricks. I'm more of a hucker, to be honest. Really? More of like a, yeah, that's more of my nature, but something I probably shouldn't do too much, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Just because I'm big and I can like take big slams. <laughs> <laughs> a further to fall. Big tree, fall hard. Cool, man. That was really fun. Thanks yep. for doing it. Hello again, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Taylor Finney. I certainly did, and it left me wanting to sit down with him again and also ride with him. When we left his studio, which is about a 15-minute ride from downtown Girona, uh, he showed us all kinds of fun little cutty trails to get from A to B from his studio back to Girona, Um, and it was so fun. It was just like childhood style shredding 
Um, and Nicole and I were just grinning from ear to ear. Of course, we were fired up after sharing a meaningful conversation, but then just sharing the bike in a 100% fun-focused way, which is the way that Taylor, as you heard, um, prioritizes enjoying the bike these days. Really inspiring. Um, I want to continue to work a little bit more of that into my life, despite the fact that I am really enjoying my professional racing career still at this point. I want to say a big thank you to Dometic for supporting today's episode. As I said at the top of the show, we're taking off for Mid-South Gravel in a few days, and we will have our CFX3 25-liter cooler in tow. We were introduced to Dometic CFX3 coolers about this time last year, and they've just really changed the game for us. Um, you can power them off of just about anything, AC power, DC power, uh, off of your car cigarette lighter, off of a solar, like a mobile solar panel. And we've done some of everything in that regard because we use it in so many different uh, scenarios. And this coming weekend, we'll be cruising around in the Bronco, previewing the course, new course at Mid-South this year. So we'll have beverages in there staying fresh, but we'll also be taking this thing camping later in the year uh, and everything in between. If you'd like to check out Dometic's awesome CFX3 coolers, you can go to dometic.com slash outdoor and use code STASH23 for 20% off. That's a big chunk of change, y'all. STASH23 at checkout at dometic.com slash outdoor. Lastly, if you want to see some clips from today's interview with Taylor, Nicole was there with the good old iPhone <laughs> just capturing some some clips. Uh, they're, you know pretty fly on the wall. We're not at a point where we're cranking out two or three sweet, you know, DSLR cameras, um, and creating a studio setting maybe one day, but I think it's fun to have a little visual component along with these interviews, no matter how humble they may be. So if you go to the adventure stash on Instagram, you can catch some clips of Taylor and I chatting. I want to thank you. I want to say a very big thank you to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing each and every show. And I also want to say a big thank you to all of y'all for supporting and listening to this show. We will catch you next week. Race season is right around the corner. We'll still have plenty of uh, nice heart-to-hearts like we did with Taylor this week, but there will be some race coverage too. So stay tuned if that is your thing. <laughs> <laughs>